What's up, family? The verdict is in. And he was found guilty. Now, for some reason, I feel like I should be in a better place. I have to admit, my heart is still very heavy. I'm realizing that in some form or fashion, there has been some level of justice served. But I'm still realizing that the inequities that we see still exist. So the question is, now what? How do we ensure that this first step is not the last one? That this progress that we are seeing, even though a life was still lost, to make justice become served? What are our next steps? Where do we go from here? And I'm hoping through today's conversation, we can dive into that a little bit more and ensure that this first step definitely not our last and if this is your first time tuning into penciled in welcome you're going to be listening to a podcast that is driven by numbers painted by story and refusing to allow dialogue across difference to be erased by allowing our humanity to be more than penciled in let's go Power on, power, power, power on. Uh, I think, uh, I think my leadership, uh, I think my leadership story starts with, uh, being a young black man, being a young black man that lived in two worlds. It's black down here. How the hell are we supposed to fight? That lived in two worlds. A young black man that lived in two worlds. I'll be going a little something like this. Hit it! Family, 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 it is April 22nd, 2021. My name is David Hardy Jr., your host of Penciled In. I'm so excited to be here with you today because we're actually going to unpack the intersection of housing inequities and the home security challenge that has been intentionally created to create the environments that we see today and unfortunately too many people live in. So through today's conversation, we're going to dive deep into seeing how those discrepancies are created intentionally through systemic and an institutionalized policy and realized what we saw just two days ago in the verdict of the George Floyd murder case is actually a result of policies surrounding housing. So let's dive into it and see where we can go. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed towards the goal of political independence, and we still creep at a horse and buggy's pace towards the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in the airtight cages of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, then you will understand why we find it so difficult to wait. 
There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. Dr. Martin Luther King Letter from Birmingham City Jail April of Miami-Dade County, a place that I was lucky enough to call home for the first five years after college at Colgate University. And what was special about Miami was not the obvious things that most people see. Yes, there's the waves and ocean that sit right there. There's the glitz and glamour of famous stars and spaces where people hang out that bring people to Florida every single day of the year. But there was a special piece of Miami that allowed myself to just be. It was such a diverse, beautiful, cultural place where so many people cared so deeply about their nook of their neighborhood. It was also one of the most welcoming communities that I have ever been a part of. And as a 22-year-old young man coming out of a predominantly white institution and trying to find myself, it was comforting to know that I had people in places that were looking out for my best interest as a person of color in a community I did not know. That type of special. Fast forward a few years after being in Miami, I had an opportunity to work out of a school, Phyllis Wheatley Elementary. Phyllis Wheatley Elementary was situated in Overtown neighborhood. If you're familiar with Miami, it is one of the poorest, unfortunately most crime-ridden communities, only minutes away from the famed South Beach. But here at this school, there was a ton of love and care and dedication to the kids of that community. And on this particular day, We had a a challenge with one of our kids who, for better or for worse, often had challenges. However, there were so many days in which he would come to school with so much energy. He had a smile that would literally light up a room and melt your heart away and forget about all of the things and challenges that he might have presented the day before. But this one particular day was rougher than any other. To the point where he became extremely frustrated with his environment at school, wouldn't talk to anyone, and created a disruption that forced me to have a conversation with him that he just didn't want to have. And so we were going to go talk to mom. And given where this school was situated, a number of our kids walked to school, so I decided that I would walk home with them that day. 
And for me, I would drive into Overtown every single day. So I didn't take notice of the environment too much around me as I was driving to my school, as I was determined to just get to school and, and be with my kids. But here was this opportunity for me to see what he saw. As we walked home, you can almost see and feel a level of relaxation fall over his body, a little bit more comfort in his space. While me, on the other hand, I was taking notice of things that I just couldn't imagine living in. As we walked closer to his home, we saw more individuals who unfortunately were under the influence of drugs and stepped over a lot of paraphernalia that was laying around became entrenched in an environment I just did not know existed in Miami. But for him, this was home. For him, this is where he felt love. This is where his day started. And as we got closer and closer to his house, I noticed that the buildings were made of solid concrete. I mean, not the the brick that you might see in neighborhoods, but solid concrete as if it was to weather a large storm. And you didn't see a ton of detail in the aesthetic of the buildings. You saw dwellings. You saw houses. And as we moved closer to his house, he became a little bit more talkative. Started to explain what was on his heart and what was on his mind. And before I finish this conversation about this young man, I have to say he was one that I hold so near and dear to my heart. And if you if you ask my wife or anyone near me, they're like, Dave, every person, every child that you talk to is your favorite. But I have to say this young man had a special place in my heart. And he and I became big brother, little brother in so many ways. And as he started to open up to me and explain what was going on, and it's not important for this story, I came to understand how the level of frustration would mount in this fourth grader. I could see how the challenges that he was articulating to me became the challenges that he shared with us at school. As we got closer to his home, I started to tie things together to see how his life was lived. And as we approached his door, I would never forget the moment as he started calling out his mother's name. No response. Kept calling out. And as we reached the door, and I'm thinking he's going to take out his key and open up the door. Ask him, so do you have your key? As we reached the door, I realized Kenneth didn't have a key. Looked around, he said, No, no key. And he would reach into his window, prop something up to kind of open the door. That's the moment I realized that he was doing more than just opening the door, he was going through the window of his house. Problem was, there were no windows, no glass, no screen, just two open spaces 
to a concrete dwelling. No windows. But then there is this. Communities like the ones Kenneth lived in are pointed way too often nowadays as opportunity zones or places that quote unquote need help or worse places where people say things like if only the people that live there cared about their community and worked harder they could live differently kind of places but what if i were to tell you that not only are these places commonplace for people of color but commonplace on purpose to the point where the unfortunate and now legally identified as a criminal death of George Floyd was a circumstance of intentional malicious design decades ago. And all of it had to start with where people live. Yes, Derek Chauvin is guilty as charged, but the death of George Floyd is on the hands of structural inequities that bring water to a boiling point until another person is burned to death. And here's how. Housing. As defined by the NIH, housing is one of the most basic and at the same time most varied foundations that make living and modern social structure possible. Without a functioning, protective, and equitable housing stock, people's very survival as individuals and as a community would not be possible because housing provides shelter from the elements, access to food, clean water, clothing, and other basic necessities. The NIH goes on to say, the physical infrastructure also makes possible for human communication, interaction, movement, psychosocial well-being, and indeed people's very individual and collective identities start with the place that they make their home. Physical infrastructure is a major part of what people need to build social norms and how well those infrastructures perform and which group it serves best and unfortunately worst has important implications for social equity and environmental health. So I sat there and as I read this, I wanted to find out more about the social inequities and environmental health concerns when these basic needs of quality housing are not met and how these inequities came about. The United Nations Habitat Agenda used the term housing to encompass several attributes of habitat that include physical infrastructure, which we talked about with the NIH, but they also talk about adequate housing and shelter more broadly. They say it's more than just a roof over one's head. Rather, they define it as Adequate privacy, adequate space, physical accessibility, structure stability, durability, access to light, heating, and ventilation, water, sanitation, waste management facilities. The definitions of substandard housing, according to the United Nations Habitat Agenda, are places with severe or moderate physical problems. The definitions of substandard housing or housing with severe or moderate physical problems are drawn largely from the sanitation movement of more than a hundred years ago, which focused on addressing water and airborne communicable diseases. Adequate housing, by their definition, also means affordable. And healthy housing, though, 
is to find us housing that is sited, designed, built, renovated, and maintained in ways that supports the health of its residents. Now, this really got me going because I, I wanted to know more about what was the driver behind inadequate housing, and it brought up a ton of contributing factors, some stemming from the physical structure, but a number of variables actually had to do more with the environment in which these homes are situated. And these situations were created intentionally through the intentional segregation of people. I came across an article from the Brookings Institute from 2019, where it spoke directly to the residential segregation that we see today and where it came from. They talk about the fact that we are actually only a few decades away from racial segregation that was an explicit goal of public policy. So much so that we're still contributing to that segregation through the way we live in four distinct ways. One, zoning. There's still a large economic gap by race and exclusionary land use policies based on families' economic circumstances that keep the entrenched racial segregation in place. Increasing the amount of low density development and superimposing highly segregated neighborhoods, which ultimately brings to a halt integration. The second one, transportation. Highways and runways have often damaged or cut off black neighborhoods. In many ways, the way that our roads are constructed are tearing apart the fabric of black and brown neighborhoods that thrive. The third in which the Brookings Institute brings up is the steering of black and brown people, home buyers and renters towards neighborhoods that are majority black or brown. They go on to say in 2012 alone, white and black home buyers were sent to 8,000 randomly selected realtors. And black home seekers were shown 18% fewer homes. The fourth, credit. It is well known and documented in this country that black and brown people have been denied loans to buy their homes, which we'll talk about in a second from the Housing Act of 1937. But today, we have still seen Black Americans being denied affordable credit and have been pushed towards subprime loans. Big banks across this country, like Wells Fargo and Bank of America, have recently settled with our own Justice Department for pushing Black home buyers into subprime mortgages, overcharging them for home loans, and other breaches. Yet there are still some folks that will say this is all coincidental and has nothing to do with the inequities that established the way that we live in this country. But if we really look at our country's history, it is impossible to see that these policies as anything else but intentional. 
For example, the Housing Act of 1937 was designed to segregate people by creating low-income public housing, largely in inner cities to consolidate neighborhoods of color. This in turn created suburbs, and these suburbs were funded and supported in years to come by friendly loans and financial support to white people that led to the birth of segregated suburbs. Loans and supports that people of color were not given access to or approval of so they too could buy homes. This becomes more bright-lined or red-lined, if you will, as veterans returned from war where disproportionate amounts of veterans were provided funding through the GI Bill who were white. This GI Bill was advertised as a bill to provide veterans loans for housing. However, those loans were disproportionately provided to white veterans because the desire to create segregated neighborhoods beginning the systemic inequities that created white wealth through home ownership and poverty-stricken public housing dedicated to consolidate black bodies and low-income homes intentionally. In the first quarter of 2020, the Census Bureau reported that black households had the lowest home ownership rate at 44%, nearly 30 percentage points behind white households. Black home shoppers, as well as their Hispanic peers, are also most likely to initially pay the least towards purchasing of their residence. In a Pew Research analysis of 2015, data from the American Housing Survey showed that more than half of Black and Hispanic households reported down payments equal or less than 10% of their home's value. This compares to 37% of white buyers and 31% of Asian shoppers. On the flip side, only 12% of black households and 17% of Hispanics say they made down payments of 21% or more, one-fourth of what whites and Asians did so. To put this in perspective, this tells us that black and brown families are only able to put down a small amount of money towards a very large loan and find themselves in a space where they are owing a lot more money back to the banks in which they borrow at higher interest rates. To that point, the article goes on to say, because black and Hispanic home buyers put smaller amounts, they usually pay higher interest rates than their white and Asian peers. And in 2015, according to Pew, less than two thirds of black and Hispanic households held home loans with rates below 5%. Some 73% of white and 83% of Asian households had such mortgages. Why high interest rates saddle black and Hispanic homeowners has also been the result of racial discrimination by lenders, especially after the creation of mortgage-backed securities. So when we're even able to afford homes, they are smaller. You're paying more to get a piece of that American dream. This only speaks to the challenge of actually getting into home ownership. The other lived realities that perpetuate these housing inequities speak to who and what we have access to. When we look at the construction of American cities and the neighborhoods we live in, we see the intentional design to limit us to public transportation, access to resources, and places that will fulfill our well-being. 
and what I found was startling. I looked at the most segregated cities in America and cross-referenced those cities by population, population by people of color, and the physical location of those populations within those cities. What I found was people of color are more likely to live in population-dense regions without access to public transportation and monocultural settings that limited the diversity that communities thrive on. Not to mention these communities often lack access to high-quality food sources where people can buy groceries that are nutrient-dense and absent of Happy Meals, or the fact that black and brown communities are more likely to be in close proximity to a police precinct than a grocery store. Let that sink in. In another finding by the NIH, they go on to say that populations that are ill-served by physical infrastructure and inadequate housing have a host of unmet needs and environmental diseases and injuries, making their full potential and participation in productive society problematic. This results in profound loss for society at large as well as for at-risk communities and individuals. But here's the piece that really got me. As I looked into some of the research from various sources, the most subtle intentional design related to where people live may be the actual temperature in which they reside. As I dug into the statistics, I came across a term called urban heat islands, which according to NASA, an urban heat island, or a UHI, occurs when a city experiences much warmer temperatures than nearby rural areas. And as a result of these urban heat islands, several health implications begin to interact with the inadequate housing people live in. In New York, for example, there has been shown disparities in age-standardized all-cause mortality rates with preventable diseases such as malignancies, diabetes, and chronic lung disease contributing to this disparity. Repeated hospitalizations for children with asthma are correlated with children residing in the census tracts with the highest proportion of crowded housing conditions, largest numbers of racial minorities, and highest neighborhood-level poverty. So what does that say to us? That says that black and brown people are pushed into communities that are overcrowded, under-resourced, inadequate, and environmentally unsafe. Some cities like New York City have taken the combined effects of climate change and the concrete that has kept black and brown families in containment, seriously. They have intentionally tried to increase the number of green spaces and trees and urban centers to combat this generational lived reality, knowing devastating effects. However, metropolitans of relatively high density that have adopted an approach to increasing green spaces and trees have largely been communities that are affluent and white leaving communities of color stuck in a system that has stacked the deck against them with intentional policy and purpose. Let me go back to where I began. 
the intentional and unfortunate death of George Floyd. If we look at the location of his death, 38th Avenue in Chicago, resides in a zip code of 55401 in Minneapolis. This zip code is largely Hispanic and black. It is also home of the lowest performing schools and has a poverty rate that ranges from 12 to 26% of the population in this zip code living below the poverty line. Nearly one in four people. But get this, less than two miles away, south and west, in the 55419 zip code, you will see a fraction of the population density, 6,290 people per square mile compared to the 10,127 people per square mile in the area where George Floyd was killed. Lower reported crime, and to no surprise, better access to food, people, diversity, and all the intentional inequities that live just 1.8 miles north and east. These inequities are not isolated to the Twin Cities. There are a lot of siblings out there. Some of them, mostly segregated cities in this country, will show up on this family tree of inequity. Cities like Memphis, El Paso, Detroit, Columbia, South Carolina, Virginia Beach, Birmingham, Richmond, Baton Rouge, Dallas, Houston, Miami, Atlanta, all would fall on this list. All have clear lines of demarcation that separate, segregate, and forcibly congregate communities of color in spaces that are inadequate for living, inadequate intentionally. So when it comes to the death of George Floyd, we did not receive justice, we received accountability. If we want justice, we need cities and states to recognize our humanity and the need of people to thrive, just not survive. Better yet, let's think about what our country is founded on. Liberty and justice for all. And for that to happen, we must recognize that we police those who are trying to survive. And we protect those who are able to thrive because that is the cornerstone of inequity. That is the 1.8 miles of separation from pursuit and happiness. It is the 1.8 miles between the nine minutes and 29 seconds that separate life and death. And as long as we continue to let inequity fester, communities that have everything designed against them, segregated in hot, environmentally inadequate spaces, stripped of prosperity and opportunity, access to public transportation, jobs, and well-being, while being policed from communities 1.8 miles away, we will continue to harbor tinderboxes of inequity waiting to be lit by racism, driven by the system that created it all. Systems that created liberty and so-called justice for all. In the case of Mr. Floyd, the community he was killed in will unfortunately continue to fight for their collective lives because who we protect and serve is a thin line between love and 1.8. I don't know who needs to hear this this week 
but don't let your imperfections deter your direction. Because if you think about it, a Hall of Famer in baseball actually only hits the ball 30% of the time. And if you're one of the greatest shooters in basketball of all time and hit 40% of your three-point shots, you're great. And for the most powerful human in the world, as the President of the United States, your approval rating flutters around 50%. 50% of people that are behind you and 50% that aren't. So even these powerful individuals are not perfect and have imperfections, but they have direction and drive that allow them to push forward to become even greater. So allow that direction to drive you and not your imperfections this week and go be great. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much for joining us for another episode of Penciled In. It has been fun to continue to be your host. You can follow me at D Hardy Jr. on Twitter or Made by One Change on IG or madebychange.org. I hope you tune in to next week where we go back home, home for me to education, where we talk about and unpack the inequities that we see and exist in a system that continues to perpetuate the inequities that we see in other walks of society. So I hope that you join us for that conversation in every future conversation. And better yet, go tell a friend, click like and subscribe. Keep coming back as we continue talking about the importance of our people understanding the inequities that exist realizing that we need to do more to make sure that people aren't left out and taking actions to make sure that people are more than just penciled in. See you next week.